Okay, so what I'd like to talk about today is conversatio morum. Uh, and I, I'm going to make today's uh, meeting a little more interactive than usual. So let me begin by asking, what are the three vows that Benedictine monks make? Who can tell me that? Yeah. Michael. Stability? Mm-hmm. Oh, and I apologize, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the order is. is that it's okay. Stability, mm-hmm. obedience, and this... Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's conversatio morum is the Latin term. The translation of this Latin term is kind of debated, and that's one of the things I'll talk about today. But basically, I'm, I'm going to say one way to interpret it is conversion of life. So converting to a monastic way of life. Now, uh, how do we usually speak of these in terms of promises for oblates? So oblates obviously don't make vows. Vows have a stronger... Uh, connotation. Uh, monks are obligated to do the divine office. Oblates are not obligated, but are strongly urged to do so uh, by virtue of the promises they make. But what are the three promises that oblates make analogous to these vows? The Psalms, that I think it's every, uh, like, read the Psalms, 150 Psalms. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's that's part of uh, that's one of the, the things that flows from the, the promises that you make. There are actually three. When you make oblation, you promise three things. you remember what they are? <laughs> Good, I'm, I'm glad, I'm, I'm, glad that I'm finding this out here. <laughs> they, they actually follow the three uh, vows that uh, Benedictines make, right? So instead of obedience, in the, in the sense that I mean it when I make a vow as a Benedictine. Uh, Oblates practice what? Obedience to God's will. So uh, now monks do too, but we live it in a in a in a particular uh, particularly structured way of life. So our obedience is uh, uh, to the superior. To legitimate authority within our congregation uh, to the local ordinary in his competency uh, in dealing with our, and to the Pope. So technically the Holy Father could call me up tomorrow and say, I want you to come to Rome and I have to do it. That's part of my my vow of obedience. He can't do that with any of you. You don't have this vow. Uh, Rather, your discernment of God's will will take place more along the lines of what a typical Christian, uh, what your baptismal vows have uh, ordered you to, but in a stronger and more deliberate way. So stability, uh, stability of heart is what we usually say for oblates. So again, when a monk professes stability, that means that I'm going to stay in this community the rest of my life. And we're going to stay in this place unless we all decide to move together. So if... uh, to move a Benedictine monastery, you have to have a, a super majority of votes among the chapter members. You can, and all the chapter members have to be there for this vote. It's a really serious thing. So it's not easy to move a Benedictine monastery because uh, of this vow of stability. This is one of the reasons why something I'm going to emphasize today uh, and something I'm going to be emphasizing frequently uh, with you over the coming year is the importance of uh, thinking locally as when you're a Benedictine. So we think in terms of neighborhoods and, and areas, uh, local cultures. 
So one of the reasons Benedictinism has been very strong, even though um, it's interesting, I, I think the Benedictines have suffered as many reverses as any religious order other than maybe the Jesuits uh, when they were suppressed in the 18th century uh, than, than other religious orders. But Benedictines keep bringing back up. Part of the reason is this the decentralized organization that we have uh, and the emphasis on stability and uh, relationships with the actual members who make up the monastery rather than with the members that make up the order. Okay, so we're really focused on the, the men that are in our location and our abbey or monastery. And then in terms of conversatio morum, um, normally we say something like fidelity to a monastic way of life as my state of life permits, right? So oblates, try to stay faithful to uh, the spirit of monastic life, but according to the uh, limitations or, or, you know, opportunities you have in your life, work, family situation, health situation, and so on. So this fidelity to a monastic way of life is what I want to talk about today. And I want to start by talking about conversatio morum. A couple things about this, and um, by the way, this relates to something I'm working on, which I, I'll put on the blog eventually. It's a- asking the question, you know, is Benedictine life a, a political thing? And I would say yes, 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 yes. But the, the problem is we don't understand politics in the same way that Benedictines traditionally have. Uh, and the re- one of the reasons I want to say that Benedictine life is political is that both these words, conversatio, and then the word morum, is, it's the genitive plural of the word mos, which uh, both of these words mean a way of life. And when I took... Uh, upper level Latin in college, and we got this word most, um, my teacher, Ralph Johnson, said, if you translate this as lifestyle, I'm going to flunk you immediately. <laughs> it's way of life. It's not a lifestyle. The reason that, that he wanted us to make this distinction is a way of life is something that's given, that we receive, that's passed on to us. So different peoples have different ways of life, right? So uh, in America, we have one way of living, uh, if you go to France, there's a different way of life. Within France, there are many local cultures, and they have slightly different ways of life in the Mediterranean part of France versus the northern part of France, say around Paris. Uh, there's a different way of life in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in China, in India, in Africa. There are lots and lots of ways of life in Africa. But all of these are created over time by people living together uh, uh, and sharing life together. And then when you're born into one of these cultures, you just take on this way of life. Lifestyle is an individual choice, right? So a lifestyle, it comes out of, of existentialist philosophy. I get to choose personally how I dress, what music I listen to, what food I eat, where I live. I can move around. I could leave the country. I could live just about anywhere and, and uh, that seems suitable to my personal preferences. So these are really two radically different things. Uh, conversatio morum, this word conversatio is an almost exact uh, synonym for most. Uh, they both mean way of life. It's very curious. So this is one of the reasons why there's this debate about why would St. Benedict make one of the vows, the way of life of the ways of life, <laughs> which is literally how you would translate conversatio morum. 
But definitely what he's getting at is that there is, there is a fixed kind of traditional monastic way of life. We don't get to choose. Uh, well, I want to live monastic life this way. We, we hand ourselves over to the community and to the superior, and we learn a new way of life. And this involves conversion. We have to change. So we come from one way of life in the world into the monastery, and it's a new way of life. I want to illustrate this with a little more uh, interactiveness. So let, let's just say, when you visit another country or another culture, what are some of the things you notice about it that are different from what you normally uh, experience at home? Just mannerisms. Mannerisms. Language. Language. Food. Food. Yeah. Dress. Dress. Yeah. Yeah, so, so these are really obvious things. And now if you think about it, when one enters the monastery, well, we dress differently. Uh, we eat differently. We, we fast at certain times. Um, we might feast at certain times that other people are not. Um, we have a different kind of language. So we have words like conversatio moro. <laughs> uh, we, we, we talk about types of things that other people outside the monastery don't talk about, like the orarium. You know, so the orarium is the schedule of hours throughout the day that you have to pray. And then what you do in between the prayer times, right? So in our orarium, we have our main work period from about 9.40 to 12.30 each day. And so it's expected that brothers are going to be working during that time. Um, it's possible to work at other times, but... Uh, so this is also different from the world because most people in the world work, you know, we say nine to five or something like that. Um, we have a different schedule. So this is something you have to get used to. We get up at 310 in the morning. Um, if you're not a truck driver, you probably don't get up at that hour uh, and et cetera. We don't stay out till midnight. You know, uh, we have to obviously because we have to get to bed. So there are these pretty obvious differences when you enter the monastery that you have to get used to. We don't have cell phones, we don't watch television, uh, that kind of stuff, right? Um, now, here though, let's, let's push it a little further. If you have to go and move and live in another culture, and you're, you're gonna say you, you marry someone from another culture, and you go to live in his or her country and culture that's not your own, um, what other things are you going to start to notice? Like, what other things are you going to have to change about yourself? Or if you just go to live in another culture in general, some of you have done this, what do you have to change? Or what, what things do you notice that people do differently at, at a deeper level now? Behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so how do you approach that? Like, it, sometimes it can be frustrating. Sometimes... It could get frustrating. <laughs> you can start to mimic... The person next to you, and uh -huh. you start just following. Yeah, yeah. And so you start to take on some of those mannerisms, right? Yeah. Yeah. Could it be something as simple as local laws, like driving on the opposite side yeah, of the sure. road that you're used to? Sure, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. In Scandinavia, mm -hmm. often when you're walking, if somebody, if you're who's walking behind you and wants to get past you, here we'd say, oh, excuse me, I'm dragging by. Mm -hmm. Well, there they just push you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. They, yeah. But it's not rude. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just what they do. The, yeah. the first time this happens to you, though, you're kind of like, hey, what's your. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's just, 
it's their norm of, of what they do because they don't want to they don't want to say you're in their way uh-huh. and imply that you shouldn't be there so they just sort of push you aside yeah yeah right <laughs> so so i mean that these are tricky things to navigate this happens when people enter the monastery because for example we're not supposed to talk most of the time during the day and if you come from uh so i have three sisters and uh, so family gatherings are always full of lots of talk. They're, they're all very uh, energetic people. And um, uh, to enter the monastery where no one's talking was, was quite shocking for me in one sense. Um, and you find this with, with uh, some other men. The silence can be very difficult because it feels, not only is it just unsettling to be silent, but it feels like everybody's being rude. Like they don't say good morning. <laughs> they might not even look at you when you go to get your coffee in the morning because everyone's just supposed to be praying, right? So we've got, yeah. Just one. Please, question. yeah. Um, can you gesture hello? I, I always feel bad. I uh-huh. don't know whether I should when I see you, you that I should sort of nod hello and be silent or. Yeah, that's that. Is actually, that our customary, which governs this, says, you know, yeah, we should. In order to create a warm sense of silence, we should know how to smile to each other and nod and that kind of thing, or even say good morning if necessary. Um, uh, so that, you know, we, we make room for each other, but we don't want to get into conversations. And even in the rule, it says that monks shouldn't, if a guest talks to a monk, the monk should, you know, politely excuse himself and say he's not permitted to speak with the guest, right? So, um, whereas the, the guest master and the, the abbot are always, uh, are always permitted to speak with the guest, so. Um, so these are, or how about like if, if I thought of the family idea of, of uh, marrying someone from another culture, because if you have children, you put them in school, for example, right? They're going to learn a, a whole different literature than what you learn. So if, uh, you know, I grew up reading Mark Twain and Charles Dickens, and if I married a French woman, my kids would grow up reading, I don't know, Victor Hugo, um, I can't even think of anybody now, but there are lots of French authors and, and uh, probably, probably not Mark Twain, right? Probably not American literature so much. It's, this is hard for us to, to grasp in some way because American culture is so dominant right now. Um, but let me just go over, I, just, I made a list. We've gotten most of them so far. Um, let me uh, offer some, some other ideas of what we discover in a new culture, a new way of life. So a different way of dressing. Um, I always get a kick out of, uh, uh, you know, we have a lot of monasteries in France, so I visit there fairly regularly. And uh, you can often tell an American because they don't dress as well. <laughs> in the French, the Parisians tend to dress really nicely. And uh, American and British tourists are usually more sort of casual. <laughs> right? um, and, and they usually weigh more than, than the Parisians. <laughs> uh, Food, you know, so the type of food. Um, this is going to be less striking in a, in a Benedictine monastery because we're likely to enter a Benedictine monastery that's already close to our own culture. You do find that sometimes monks will enter in monasteries far away, but it's more difficult because you have to learn two new cultures at once in a way, right? So um, I mean, it's, it's not always easy to change your dietary habits, uh, uh, and eat different types of meats, say, or, um, or whatever, or different types of spices than, than you're used to, right? I mentioned language, and this is true again in a Benedictine monastery. We have a whole kind of vocabulary of uh, things we talk about that 
I, I mentioned orarium, lots of things from theology, from the scriptures and so on. Literature, so I, I mentioned that. When someone enters the monastery, you start reading uh, not only the Bible, but St. John Cashin, St. Gregory the Great, St. Augustine, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, we have a, we, Michael Casey, I make everybody read because I think he's a contemporary Cistercian from Australia. And um, uh, his writings are really excellent adaptations of monastic life to our contemporary situation. So there's a different kind of literature uh, we, don't, we don't read the same types of things. Uh, I remember trying to explain to a friend of ours uh, who is a theologian why it is that, while I wouldn't stop a brother from reading Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ, I think it's a great book, it's not really monastic spirituality. So it doesn't hurt, but it's, it's, it's sort of less central to our way of thinking, which is more rooted in the patristics. So Thomas Akempis is writing in the 14th century. We tend to read authors from the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries. Uh, sometimes the, the great Cistercian authors of the 12th century. Uh, but the more sort of devotional literature that's grown up in the last 700 years or so, <laughs> sort of, it's sort of too newfangled for us monks, you know. <laughs> um, music and art. So when you enter a monastery, you start singing Gregorian chant. Right, and um, it takes a while to get used to how chant works. Uh, I so this is of interest to me on a kind of professional level because uh, I I didn't really care for chant when I entered the monastery. I had been working in uh, different musical forms, but certainly doing a lot of classical music in which uh, you have polyphonic singing. You've got uh, orchestral instruments and so on. So Gregorian chant, when I first uh, entered the monastery, I thought was a little dull by comparison. Uh, then when, you, when you're immersed in it and you start noticing things about it, and then I was sent to take a couple classes up at St. John's in Collegeville, suddenly a light went on. I thought, wow, this is actually really, really interesting. This is very sophisticated stuff. Uh, but it's a different language than what I'm used to. And so teaching the guys to understand the language of chant uh, it takes a little while. It's not something that comes immediately, especially, oddly enough, it can be more difficult if you uh, have a good, strong, sort of classical training. Um, you know, uh, it's when I, I, I did a lot of work in popular styles, uh, jazz and things with improvisation when I was in the world. And uh, when you have crossover musicians from classical to jazz and you tell them to improvise, they just start doing scales, you know, like this. Like, well, it's not exactly a jazz phrase, you know? Um, but to break out of that training that they've, they've uh, really worked on, and I, I did a violin impression there because violinists usually have to start pretty early to be good. Um, if you've been playing scales one certain way since you were five years old, it's hard to break out of that. Right? It takes a lot of effort. So this is, again, conversion. If we enter the Benedictine monastery, we have to start acting and thinking differently. Art, uh, you know, iconography. I, I didn't understand iconography before I entered the monastery. Uh, now I think I have a better grasp on it, even if I don't, I'm not an expert. Uh, but just understanding how to look at an icon and understand it. You know, so we have our, our Lady of Chenstohova over here. Uh, I don't think we have any other icons up right now. But they have their own language, you know, and, and understanding what the 
uh, iconographer is conveying and what the tradition is conveying through the icon takes practice. Um, now we have these wonderful icons in our sanctuary and so we, we look at them all the time and you, you start to notice things about them after a while. Um, if you, uh, uh, when our, our brothers uh, were missionaries before they started the monastery and I've heard stories about uh, when you're a missionary in Brazil and uh, it's Thanksgiving, you start going and looking for the Americans because <laughs> you want to have a Thanksgiving dinner, right? So um, if you enter a Benedictine monastery, you have different holidays, right? You have different sort of celebrations of different events. Uh, we, don't, we don't really do the 4th of July exactly. We don't neglect it. Um, we, we kind of are forced to observe it in some way because it's so loud. But, uh, um, you know, for us, a, a big day would be like today, you know, a big feast of the Lord, the baptism of the Lord. So we would have special food uh, last week for Epiphany. Um, we have uh, a traditional uh, meal that we, we've just kind of worked up over the last few years that includes, um, it's not quite the right use of it, but it's chiles and algadas. Uh, they, they, are, uh, they were created by some nuns in Mexico to celebrate Mexican independence. And so they have the colors of the Mexican flag, which also happen to be Christmas colors. <laughs> so we use it for Epiphany. Uh, and this started because our, our brother Antonio, uh, who was with us for seven years, um, showed us this recipe and it's, it's, they're really good. So we have our own traditions for different holidays. We celebrate different famous persons. So again, in the United States, think like you know, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, like these are our heroes. These are the people we look up to, the models for what it means to be an American. Well, if you're a monk, you start looking up to different persons like St. Anthony the Great, and he becomes the model. And it's not that we think any, any less of George Washington, but it's less germane to what we're trying to accomplish in, in our way of life. Um, I'm just gonna list the rest of these so as not to bore you too much, but just you can see there's lots to learn in getting used to a new way of life. Uh, how is law and authority exercised? You know, who gets to say what we're going to do? Uh, what happens if you break a rule? How, you know, what are the consequences? This is different. Uh, I think when I was in college, some young American kid went to Singapore and uh, keyed somebody's car and he had to get caned as a result of this. Spray oh, he spray painted. Okay. <laughs> and Americans were all up in arms about this. Like, we don't, we don't uh, you know, publicly humiliate people by beating them. Uh, say, but you're in Singapore. <laughs> you know, that's what... That's, you, you're under their jurisdiction now, so you don't spray paint somebody's car. Um, you know, when to wake up, when to eat, when to recreate, how often to shower, you know, different cultures have different standards of cleanliness, uh, that kind of thing. St. Benedict, for instance, doesn't want his monks taking baths too often, unless they're sick. Uh, so uh, Michael Casey, in one of his books, asks you know, if, we aren't, if we haven't thought about this enough. <laughs> so we just have sort of adopted modern standards of cleanliness without saying like, well, maybe there's, is there a spiritual reason why uh, less frequent bathing might be helpful? Uh, he didn't answer the question either. I'm not going to, uh, but um, how do we treat outsiders? You know, what, what are the, how do we act hospitably toward people who come to our house, for example? Different cultures have different standards of privacy. Uh, certain places you can and can't go in someone's home when you're a guest. Uh, monks have their own standards for these things. Um, how do we deal with the sick and the elderly? 
right? So different cultures have different understandings. This is a really interesting uh, thing. In different cultures have different standards of pain, different standards of what, it, what counts as sickness. Uh, so two examples I like to use for this is, uh, you know, American football players sort of look down at soccer players because when soccer players fall and get hurt, they writhe on the ground and cry out and grab their, their uh, leg. And when a football player breaks his leg, he doesn't say anything. <laughs> um, so there are different ways of expressing that, that I'm in pain, different ways of expressing I'm sick. Thomas Merton, I think, said something like, if your temperature is less than 104, you have to get in the choir. <laughs> so 102 degree fever doesn't count as sickness in a Trappist monastery. Um, so all these things, when you enter a monastery, you have to learn, right? So as oblates, I would say, when we talk about fidelity to a monastic way of life, you're, you're kind of like those who visit other cultures and try to take away lessons from these other cultures, but you don't actually immerse yourself in that culture as a monk does. So a monk really makes a vow to take on all these characteristics as best he can. Uh, oblates try to take on as many of these characteristics as they fit in your state of life, as we often say, right? So uh, you, your fidelity to monastic life is conditioned by where you are in your life in the world. Now, there's one uh, use of the word conversatio in the New Testament, and it's in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the English translation is our citizenship, usually is the term that you get in translations. Our citizenship is in heaven. So what we're trying to do in the monastery is create a way of life that is appropriate to a, our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven, this is why I would maintain that Benedictinism is a political thing, because it's people living together in a kingdom, in, in a polity, with a shared way of life. And what our goal is as Christians in general is to understand uh, through going to the liturgy, through our study of the Bible, through prayer, through change of our behavior, to try to enter into that reality of the kingdom of heaven into which we've already been baptized. Uh, so we're already part of the kingdom of heaven. It's just most of the time we can't see it because we, we have things to worry about, snowstorms, shoveling to do, uh, things at work we've got to worry about. We've got um, all kinds of concerns. Uh, we, we, we have to live in this in-between time, right? We, we're still also citizens of the United States. So, uh, but the... Ecclesial writers on these things often talk about us being exiles or pilgrims. So we're part of the United States, but we're also, we have a loyalty to this transcendent kingdom. Um, the, the strong sacramental way of representing this that the Catholic Church has, where we have uh, a, a pope and bishops and uh, this uh, parishes and so on, has often caused trouble because it looks like we're not going to be loyal to the local uh, temporal government, right? So uh, when Catholics first came to the United States, there was a lot of suspicion that Catholics couldn't be a part of this new country because our loyalty would be to Rome, right? Now we would say that there, in, in theory, there shouldn't be, and even in, well, in theory, there shouldn't be any uh, conflict between the two. In practice, it often happens that there's conflict between the two, and this is why Christians get martyred. 
Uh, it also is why, you know, in the Middle Ages, you would have kings actually um, doing obeisance before the Pope. Um, I'm not sure that that's the, the most effective way of going about this, but I just want to point out that this is a reality that flows from our baptisms. And what a monastery can do is to show you uh, at a deeper level what this kingdom looks like. Um, so, what governs conversatio for a monk? Uh, how do we know? Uh, because actually, if you, if you go around the world, you see that monks live in different ways. There are different ways to deal with certain circumstances. Some of it's fairly superficial. So, for instance, uh, the oldest form of Benedictine life, we've traditionally worn a black habit. Um, partly, this is it's a sign of... Uh, Compunction, a sign of, uh, uh, I can't think of the word now, uh, renunciation, penance, death to oneself, etc. Um, however, you'll see Benedictines wearing white sometimes. Uh, there are a couple of reasons why this might happen. One is that uh, when the Cistercians uh, reformed the Benedictine order in the 12th century, uh, they, one of their concerns they have is that Benedictine abbeys were getting too big and too wealthy. And so they wanted to be poor, and black dye costs a certain amount of money, so wearing plain, un, uh, uncolored wool has become the Trappist habit. They wear white, uh, with usually a, a darker scapular. Uh, so this is a sign for them of poverty, a sign of simplicity of life, and so on. It's also the case... Um, I, I gave a retreat in South Africa uh, about eight years ago, and during the summer there, they wear white habits, and you can imagine why that is. It's very hot. Uh, they're up high, and the sun is pretty oppressive during the summer, and wearing black uh, tends to absorb all that heat, and so they actually switch back and forth, because since they're up pretty high, and they're kind of in the northwest part of the country, uh, the winters actually can be pretty temperate, in which case they switch back to black. But so these are some of these differences are somewhat superficial. But what it, what controls them all is the rule of Saint Benedict. Okay, so part of my vow of obedience is to obey the rule. I have to follow the precepts of the rule. Um, so this is one of the reasons why it's important for Oblates to become familiar with the rule. Then you understand more about why we would make certain types of decisions that we do. Uh, and then you can think about what the spiritual principles are behind these things to adapt them to your own situation. And this is one of the things we can you know, discuss together, how to adapt the rule for your situation. Um, the podcasts that I'm working on right now focus almost entirely on the rule of St. Benedict. Okay, so they take you through the rule because it's in a lot of the sections of it are pretty unfamiliar. It was written a long time ago. Um, so it needs a certain amount of translation. So that's what I'm hoping to do in the podcasts. Um, however, we're also informed by the liturgy and by the Bible. And so again, two other obligations would be say reciting the Psalms uh, as part of the divine office but also doing Lexio Divina, which is uh, uh, what I'm going to talk about at our retreat in Lent. Um, I don't want any of this to sound too burdensome. This is why, again, it's always important to hear what I'm saying uh, with the qualification that this is as your state of life permits. Now, I do know there's at least one oblate uh, who's not here today who actually says the full divine office every week. 
Uh, but I, I, I don't expect that that would be feasible for the great majority of oblates. Um, maybe 15 minutes of Lexio three or four times a week might be all you can manage, but that would still be better than not knowing what's in the Bible. So just more, the more contact you can get, the better. Um, same thing with the rule. The rule is a little easier because it's a very short book and uh, most of the translations of the rule will break it down into sections so you can read a short bit every day and get through the rule three times in a year. Now this, this idea of getting through the rule three times in a year itself comes from the rule. So this just shows you how culture gets built up because in St. Benedict's day, the novices had a year-long probationary period. Uh, today, the novitiate has to be at least a year and then you have three years in simple vows. But in his day, it was just one year of novitiate and the novice had to read through the rule three times before he made vows. The idea being, once he makes vows, he can't pretend he doesn't know what's in the rule because he's read it, <laughs> right? And so we, we read the rule three times every year. That's just what we do. Uh, we do it at a meeting in the morning called chapter, and it's called chapter because we read about a chapter a day uh, of the rule. And then we have a discussion about work for the day and so on. Um, so the rule, the liturgy, the Bible, these start to form our imaginations about uh, what the kingdom of God is like and how we should comport ourselves as citizens of this kingdom. Um, St. Paul's letters, I was just reading about this. He, he nicely does this. He gives, uh, the beginning of his letters are often very friendly unless you're Galatians. Uh, they're very friendly, inviting, complimentary. Then he gives this beautiful teaching about what God has done for us in our baptisms, in Christ's passion, in the resurrection, what we have to look forward to in eternal life, etc., etc. And then he starts teaching. Therefore, and then like the last half of the letter is, this is what we should do. I, this is what I, uh, if you look at, say, the first letter to the Corinthians, he has long things of teaching about very practical issues. You know, should we get married or not, right? Um, should, we, should we baptize more than once? Uh, you know, the sort of practical questions. Should we eat food sacrificed to idols or not? Okay, and Paul gives usually pretty nuanced instructions on these things. Uh, so there's, there's, there are practical implications, but they're formed by uh, the liturgy, by the Bible, by the rule, in our case as monks. Now, here's another interesting thing about different cultures. Um, different cultures will prize different types of virtues. Um, I would say that the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues remain the same. So um, the cardinal virtues are justice, fortitude, temperance, and prudence. Uh, these are called cardinal because they, they form the hinges on which the other virtues hang or, or rotate. Um, but monks will have certain types of virtues, or, or prize them, I should say. Hopefully we have them too, but we don't just prize them but don't try to obtain them. Uh, and it's important to understand these virtues because, again, sometimes dealing with monks in contemporary culture can be uh, alternately interesting and amusing and really frustrating and irritating because uh, maybe the virtues that contemporary American culture prize are not ones that we particularly care about. So, for instance, like working a ton uh, or, or um, uh, what would be another example? 
Or, or even something like, uh, uh, our, I mentioned this, our relationship to law, for example. I've, we've been talking about this because our, our young guys are studying canon law right now. And, and what, what tends to happen when young guys study canon law is that suddenly they, they notice people breaking laws everywhere. <laughs> Start saying, hey, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that. And this is true. I, I'm not saying we should be scoff laws, but um, I, I'm actually going to talk in more detail about this in a minute. Uh, the law is, is understood differently in a monastery from how it might be understood in the sort of rarest theory of American jurisprudence. Uh, I, I, I want to make a distinction between that and say how law is understood in a place like Chicago. You often talk about you know, corruption in Chicago. There's another way to look at it. Um, there's definitely corruption in Chicago, don't get me wrong. But sometimes what, what goes on in Chicago and in other places like this, uh, sometimes there are whole countries that are famous for this, like Italy, uh, it's about personal relationships and, and, and the kinds of ways you can leverage relationships to accomplish things together. Uh, and sometimes you, you find creative ways to go around the law or to reinterpret the law and so on. Um, this is a traditional kind of way of dealing with things. Uh, it's, as I say, it unfortunately is open to corruption, but there, uh, it's about the relationships first. And so it's about a community first rather than sort of individual's relationship to an abstracted law, which is how Americans sort of tend to imagine the law. I, I read something very interesting in um, an essay by McIntyre a few weeks ago. Uh, to obtain virtue, he says, so most of his work is about virtue in some way or other since 1981. Uh, according to Aristotle and Aquinas, we're not born with the virtues, and you can't actually exercise virtuous actions until you've acquired the virtues. So how do you acquire the virtues? Uh, and the answer is you, you, just, you just imitate people who already have them. And so if you want to learn how to be brave, you go out there with a bunch of soldiers and you start acting brave. And then after your first couple of battles, you learn how to be brave. And, and uh, you learn the difference between bravery and rashness. You learn the difference between uh, prudential retreat and cowardice. Like they're two different things, but the novice doesn't know the difference between them, okay? Um, so uh, McIntyre says to become virtuous, we need teachers who can model the virtues for us and then we imitate them. And he said, what's surprising about this is that for Thomas Aquinas, one of the principal teachers is the law. So the law, the, the principles of the law are to help us change our behavior so that we can become virtuous. Uh, and this is a, a very Jewish way of thinking about the law. So you know the Jewish word that uh, we use for law is Torah, it's the Hebrew term. Uh, a more literal uh, translation of Torah might be teaching in fact. And I'll tell you a funny anecdote. Some of you might have heard me say this before. I studied Hebrew at Spurtis College downtown. And uh, I was, I think I started as one of four or five Christians in the class and there were two of us by the end. And uh, one of our first exams, uh, we had to translate some very easy stuff from Hebrew to English. And the teacher said, you're, you're gonna love this. But every time the word Torah showed up, all the Jews in class translated it as Torah. 
and all the Christians translated it as law. <laughs> okay, so um, we have this idea of law as, as one kind of thing, whereas uh, the traditional Judeo-Christian approach to law has more about uh, formation and virtue than it does sort of filling out boxes so that I can't get in trouble, right? Um, so, uh, now let me get back to my, my text here. So, monastic virtues can be uh, a little uh, disconcerting at times for people who aren't used to it. Uh, so, for instance, we prize things like patience and perseverance. Patience uh, meaning, for instance, you can sit and read a text from the Bible that you don't understand for days at a time and not, not lose heart. <laughs> because eventually God will reveal to me what it is in this that I need to know. So I'm not looking for fireworks in, in Lexio Divina. I'm just looking to immerse myself in the text. And if it's unfamiliar at first, it'll become familiar over time. So I just have to wait, keep applying myself, persevering. Um, you know, monks... Uh, I mentioned our, our work period each day is maybe three hours long. And we can do work at other times. This seems like an impossibly short amount of time to work in a day. And in some ways it is. You can't get everything done. Um, and sometimes, again, people will get very frustrated because monks don't seem to get anywhere. <laughs> like we have uh, all these projects and they take forever to get going. But um, learning... Learning how to set work aside to go pray the office or how to uh, focus first on what God is doing in the community rather than what we're doing is important for monks in such a way that work has to be set aside. So there are many stories about the Desert Fathers, for example, that again was interestingly taken up by the Dominicans in their hagiographical writings about Thomas Aquinas. So monks have always been the scribes uh, because monks like to read the scriptures. And in the old days, if you wanted copies of the scriptures, oftentimes you had to copy them for yourselves. Monks often learned how to prepare parchment, papyrus, and, uh, and how to write. And, um, but the, the deal was when the bell rings for the liturgy, you don't even dot your eye. You put your, your quill down and you go. Uh, so the work of God comes first, whatever else there is there. And I think one of the things you can say when a monk's vocation is in trouble, it's often the case that he's late for the office or, or skips it. You know, then there's often a problem. Um, this relates to uh, the virtue of vigilance, which is one I'm, the uh, Father Edward and the brothers are gonna hear me talking about a lot. Um, this is related to obedience. So vigilance, uh, the one question we get all the time is why do you get up at 310? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> tell you another anecdote. So our, our former mother house, Christ in the Desert. Uh, has anyone here been there? Christ in the Desert? We've got one. So you know that it's not easy to get there. <laughs> you have to go way out in the wilderness in New Mexico and then go 14 miles on a gravel road, uh, winding around mountains and things. It's, and uh, the great uh, Benedictine scholar, Jean Leclerc, I went to visit Christ in the Desert back in the 70s. And uh, as this is back when the road wasn't even gravel, it was just dirt. And so sometimes if there was rain, you couldn't get to there in or out. You just had to wait till it dried up. And uh, after about three miles bumping around on this dirt road, Father Jean turned to his driver and said, uh, 
Uh, had they built the monastery here, would they not have proved their point? <laughs> so sometimes we get uh, observations like that. You know, if you got up at 5, wouldn't that sort of do the same thing? Well, it's after 310. Now, there are reasons why we've chosen as a community to start that early, because not every uh, monastery gets going that early. But all, all monks have to keep vigil. That's the key thing. And uh, so we, we pray this office of vigils. We are watching for the kingdom of God to manifest itself. Uh, symbolically, this is we're waiting for the sunrise. We're waiting for the illumination of, of the sun. Uh, we're watching for it. But uh, at a sacramental level, what we're doing is watching for God's manifestation of the, the kingdom among us. It's already here. We're waiting so that we can see with spiritual eyesight what God is doing. And this requires attentiveness and vigilance. Um, so one of the things we want to avoid in the monastery is getting so caught up in some work or project or reading or entertainment that we forget to be vigilant. So we're always keeping vigil in some sense and getting up in the morning reinforces this lesson that this is what we should be doing. Uh, St. Benedict often talks about obedience in the rule that it should be prompt. So a monk is always ready to do what his superior says. We're always ready to do what God says. We're always focused on where God is and listening for him first. Um, this, is, uh, this is not an easy discipline. You know, this, this takes a long time in the monastery to get to this point. Oftentimes, um, at, in initial formation, guys are really good at this because they come in full of a lot of excitement to do this new thing. And then after a few months of it, it's like, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's some uh, maybe backsliding or a... Uh, time to reappropriate what this would look like for the long haul, you know, for a lifetime of, of vigilance. Humility uh, is, um, is a prized virtue. This is why the longest chapter in the rule is on humility. Um, this might not seem like a virtue, but I've come to think that it is because it is something you can practice. It's also something that uh, you, we, we often need help on um, when we had... Uh, the late Mother Mary Claire Vincent from St. Scholasticus in Petersham. She preached our retreat in, I think, 2004 or so. Uh, she was this very soft-spoken, wonderful lady. And she began one of her conferences by saying, we Benedictines, uh, we all profess that we want to be humble. And the easiest way to become humble is through humiliations. <laughs> and uh, so this is a good warning, but it's, it's important uh, because this is such a key virtue and that we want to acquire it. So when we encounter these humiliations, we know how to respond to them. Uh, this, you might get a chuckle out of this, but I've been reading uh, books by uh, these former Navy SEALs, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And they're really good. Uh, they're on leadership but they, they don't say the word virtue, but they're talking about virtues all the time in these books. And what really struck me about these books is the, their emphasis on humility. And so many of the chapters of their books begin with some monumental failure that they had as Navy SEALs, where, where they made bad decisions of some kind, or they failed to communicate properly, and things went, went wrong. And the reason they tell these stories is to say if, if you're not humble and you can't learn from these mistakes, um, then you're going to keep making them. So it's really important in learning how to be a leader, in learning how to acquire the virtues, 
to be humble enough to recognize that that choice was a mistake. So I need to recalibrate now. And the, the easiest way to know we've made a mistake is, is through humiliation, you know, to, that, when it's really obvious. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a good opportunity for us to work on this uh, humility. They, they have a chapter in this last book, I think it's called Humility, Not Passivity, or something like that. So humility is just learning how to see myself as I really am, rather than trying to project some idealized version of myself to others and to, my, to myself. But just, um, uh, and if you look at the chapter seven in St. Benedict's Rule, uh, at the top of the ladder of humility, he says, uh, you know, once we reach the top, we're going to be free. We're going to run the way of the virtues with delight. And uh, so humility isn't just a negative thing of beating up myself or something like that. It's, it's learning to accept who I am from God, okay? Uh, so the last uh, odd sort of virtue that you'll find in Benedictine monasteries, one hopes you find it there, <laughs> but uh, can be a little uh, difficult to understand is, I would call it reticence. So restraint of speech is uh, one of the chapters in, in the beginning of the rule. Um, an, another retreat mistress we had, this is Mother Maria Thomas actually who wrote the book here. Uh, she said one of the things important to learn at the beginning of a monastic vocation is it's not necessary for me to have an opinion on everything. Okay, and again, I would say in, in our world where uh, you go to some article on the internet and there are 1,136 comments, everybody saying, you know, I know what should have happened here. This is what this person should have said. Uh, there's this encouragement to speak our mind all the time. Uh, St. Benedict would rather have us uh, be, be reticent about these things. So for instance, when there's a, a community meeting, uh, I might have to say what I think is best uh, but I would do so in a way that's humble, that respects the opinions of others, that respects the fact that the, the abbot or the prior in our case is going to make the decision and it's not a democratic process, so I'm not going to argue my point. And in fact, St. Benedict clearly says that brothers shouldn't argue their points in meetings. They should say what, you know, what, we, what he thinks we should do. I think it's possible to dialogue in these meetings and try to clarify with each other what the other person means and so on. But if we start campaigning in these meetings, then we're not really entering into this spirit of humility and reticence and obedience. Uh, and instead, I'm trying to push my own uh, version of things. Uh, which, you know, to be fair, it might be God's will ultimately, what, I, what I'm pushing for. <laughs> it's not impossible. But if I'm always doing that, it's it's... You know, you have to start wondering if God has some plan, if, if God isn't just a projection of my own preferences rather than God. You know, so I'm creating a kind of idol based on my own ideas. So monks want to uh, work on reticence. The last thing I'd like to share with you about Benedictine culture, which uh, I think will be uh, helpful for you, is... Uh, what I would call it's uh, decentralization. And I talked about this a little bit last month in talking about the virtue of hope that in my opinion, one of the reasons we struggle with hope is that we've, we've bought into the idea that political structures have to be gigantic. 
And so the power is very far away and hard for us to influence. And so when power starts going in a way that makes us uncomfortable or nervous, and we can't do anything about it, it raises anxiety and it's, it saps us of hope. Whereas I'd like to say, if we see political life as something that's more local, it's something we do together. Um, by the way, the word uh, political comes from what Greek word? Polis. Polis, yeah, which means what? It's a city, yeah. And it's a Greek old uh, city-state, right? So it's a separate political group based in a city with sort of the fields around it where the farmers work and then bring their produce into the city. These were pretty small groups, you know? So I think the city of Athens, um, say before the big boom under Pericles, early fifth century BC, was probably had about as many people in it as Bridgeport does, our neighborhood. So probably like 30 or 40,000 people. Um, uh, you know, I think Jerusalem at its height had maybe 100,000 people in the Old Testament, maximum, right? So these are not large cities like Chicago. They're, they're more akin to something like, a, uh, I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. At the, in those days, we had 80,000 people. Okay? So you could kind of get to know at least like the major families. You had some connection to them. Like you knew somebody who knew the mayor. You knew somebody who went to school with the mayor, you know. You, whereas uh, here now, since, since we live in Bridgeport, we usually know somebody who went to school with the mayor. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we actually know Commissioner Daly pretty well. Uh, so we, we, you know, we have some pretty good connections that way. Because, uh, you know, he just goes to uh, Nativity right over here. Um, so, uh, but, but again, there's this, it's about relationships, you know, knowing people, knowing the people who, you know, the families whose kids go into law, the people whose the kids go into medicine. And so uh, the way the thing functions is you're much more empowered in a situation like that, if I can use that language. Uh, if you need something, you know who you can turn to. It's, it's not a stranger. It's someone who knows someone you know. It might be someone who, you know, uh, whose cousin is... Your, your wife's sister, right? That kind of thing. So um, now the reason I'm bringing this up is because Benedictine stability has the function of preserving this sense of a locality and these sorts of relationships. One way to think of this is uh, through the juridical principle of autonomy. So Benedictine monasteries for the most part are autonomous juridically. What that means is, uh, you've heard me say this before, but uh, this means that I'm an ordinary of the church, okay? So uh, under normal circumstances, my immediate superior in the church is the Holy Father, okay? Because we're not a centralized order where I answer to an abbot general, for example, in Rome. So the, uh, the Jesuits, for example, would have... Um, What's their head guy called? I can't think of his name now. The Superior General. The Superior General. He's in Rome, and he governs through provincials uh, who govern the provinces of the Jesuit order. And then under the provincials, there are sort of local superiors who run houses or schools or whatever it is. But it's all centralized. It goes back to one person at the center. Benedictine order, the Order of St. Benedict, is not technically a religious order. We're a confederation of autonomous monasteries. And so we group ourselves by congregations in order to have a structure, but the primary uh, grouping is at the local level. 
And one of the images is, uh, you know, it's a charismatic teacher around whom there are disciples. And this is one of the reasons why traditionally you need 12 monks to be an abbey, because our Lord had 12 apostles, right? So the imagery is that of an abbot with the disciples around him. And then these abbeys confederate, you know, with one another uh, so as to support one another, to... Uh, to benefit the church by better organization and so on. But it's not easy, uh, say, if a Benedictine monastery uh, near us is having problems, it's not easy for us to go in and fix it because we don't have any juridical authority over them. Um, <clears throat> this, now, even just to put it that way, I think can sound dangerous because we're so used to having these big structures. And I actually had a, when I was in school at St. John's, um, they have an annual monastic experience program where these young guys will come and spend a month at the, at the Abbey. And uh, they often spend a lot of time with the seminarians. And so I was having lunch with one of these guys. And he said, yeah, the only thing I'm worried about with the possibility of entering the Benedictines is if, if they go crazy, who stops them? <laughs> right, so the idea is if, if there isn't this big superstructure, then you're gonna have all these crazy things going on at the local level. And I guess my answer to that in part is, is that, you know, if we don't really believe that the Holy Spirit can influence us, uh, if we don't really believe that uh, we, through our, our practice of the liturgy, through our practice of charity, that we can't work out our own problems, um, I, I, I think this, the whole human project is doomed. <laughs> you know, I mean, why, why should, it, why should the, there be a higher level of virtue at a higher level of organization when... You know, uh, we all know that power corrupts, for example. So the higher up you go, the more temptation there is for all kinds of problems. So what we tend to do in the American system is put lots of laws in place, the, the checks and balances and so on. And I, and I think actually our structure uh, politically, in theory, is really good. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing American, uh, the American political system. But I am saying that the Benedictine system is a culture change for most of us. We don't organize ourselves in the way that uh, the federal government or even a state government in the United States organizes itself. Um, let me tie this up with just a couple things and then we can, we can take some questions here. Uh, so again, just this mindset of this local culture. Um, let me go back to this idea of canon law and law as a teacher rather than as some kind of abstracted set of obligations. Um, the canon law says that the Pope is the supreme legislator. Again, I think our tendency is to hear that in such a way that the Pope can just rule on everything. He can, he can change laws, etc. cetera. Um, partly what this means in a traditional sense, again, is that you know, the laws are there to govern normal interactions. But no law can ever anticipate all of the situations in life. You always need someone to interpret it in some way. And sometimes things, uh, you, you know, there was some guy who wrote a book a few years ago to show that every day you commit like 10 felonies. Have you heard about this? And there are so many laws in the United States that you can't like walk down the street without breaking a whole bunch of them. And at some level we know that they can't all be prosecuted, you know, we can't, there has to be some possibility that the cop's gonna catch you speeding and say, well, I'm not gonna give you a ticket, you know, because there are 
maybe you'll learn from this experience or whatever it is. There's always the possibility that authority can say, well, yes, the law says this, but we're going to do this because, and, and they have the authority to do it. So um, St. Benedict says in a lot of places he, in the rule, you know, I, he legislates one thing in the rule, but then he says, but let the abbot decide, you know, or he says, uh, he sets up the 150 Psalms in a week and then says, but if you have a better system, go ahead and change it. Okay, so, but you have to maintain the spiritual principle. In this case, it is, the Psalms are so important to monks that we have to say every one of them every week. Can't, you can't skimp on them for, for us. Again, obviously will be a little different. But um, again, there's this sense in which a community working together on a way of life can discern its own way forward uh, if, if we're practicing the virtues, if we're practicing humility, if we're reading the Bible, if we're praying the liturgy, etc., etc. When obstacles come up, we can have a discussion together and the abbot can listen and make a decision that benefits everybody. Um, it's funny, because just as I'm saying that, I feel like, uh-oh, I better qualify that because some of the, <laughs> that's not how we do things usually in, in our political life together. Um, the further up the Benedictine chain of authority you go, the less juridical authority you have. So the top-ranking Benedictine in the world is the abbot primate. Um, and he has uh, his primary, primary juridical responsibility is as rector of our college in Rome. But he has no authority, say, over our house. Okay? Our abbot president does. But... Practically speaking, how often has the abbot president told us do X or Y or Z thing? Never. <laughs> Below him is an abbot visitor because we have provinces. We have such a large congregation that we have provinces. Uh, I think three or four times since I've been in the monastery, an abbot visitor has given us a mandate in a visitation. Yeah, so at a visitation every three years, the, the abbot visitor interviews all the monks and then gives a report to the community, he may mandate certain things, and we're, we're bound to follow them. But he's only the superior for like the two or three days <laughs> that he's here, and as soon as the visitation's over, if there are no mandates, he has no authority again at any level, okay? It's, it, the authority resides in the chapter and in the superior, okay? Um, so, again, this, this is... Uh, this means that our religion and our culture are completely integrated. This is another change, you know, um, from our way of thinking out in the world. Um, and uh, so all of these changes, so what, when, you, when you promise fidelity to a monastic way of life according to your state of life in the world, as oblates, what I'm inviting you to do is to get to know how this works in a monastery, how these things work, uh, to become a part of this life with us, uh, this is one of my projects for the year, is to try to think of how we monks and oblates can form a way of life together at some level. I think it would be beneficial for us as monks uh, because uh, we're such a small community. It would be beneficial to have the kind of input from you uh, that would imply a shared uh, project together, that we're trying to build something together. And also, I think then we can offer more to you if we see uh, us as one project of trying to be converted to this monastic 
set of values, these monastic virtues, monastic practices, etc. Uh, so with that, I'm going to end my talk uh, and just see if you have any observations or questions in the 10 minutes or so before uh, I have to put my pen down and get to the office. <laughs> so, yes, Jim. Just uh -huh. Very, very little. Um, uh, and it's interesting because Benedictine monasteries traditionally have had sort of on and off relationships with bishops in general because we tend to form a kind of parallel structure to the, the hierarchy. And in the Middle Ages, this was more prominent because the monasteries were so large and so plentiful. Uh, but an abbot has almost the same prerogatives as a bishop does. Um, and so, for instance, as an ordinary, uh, I can install men in minor orders, for example. I can't, I can't ordain, uh, but I have the faculty of, uh, of uh, installing someone as an acolyte, for example. Um, when it comes to the liturgy, uh, especially the mass, uh, the, the local ordinary of the hierarchy has the final say on those things. So, uh, for instance, in issues of the calendar and things like this, um, we're bound, well, and we actually receive our faculties as priests from the local ordinary, and we have to have his permission to be here and exercise these faculties. And if I go somewhere else, uh, this is interesting. So if Father Edward travels outside of the diocese, as his ordinary, uh, under normal circumstances, I can write a letter of recommendation for him that says he can offer mass uh, in another diocese. Uh, I, I have to go to the bishop's office because um, I, I don't have an ordinary over me. So for, uh, and I can't vouch for myself. The bishops uh, have uh, identification cards they carry that show that they're actually bishops. Um, I, Benedict and Abbots don't really have that. So we usually get a letter from the, the local ordinary for these things. So we, we have some interaction that way, but most of what goes on here is, uh, is the local community's decision. Yeah. I was thinking, what, when you're talking about how the abbeys or the priors don't really court, structure themselves, mm -hmm. which all do have a, a common confessional, they all have a common rule. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so since there is something that is universal at each one, mm -hmm. you didn't choose it, it's, you know, yeah. you did it. And that's very different from, say, something like the Baptist, mm -hmm. where, you know, mm -hmm. every church is independent, every church, you know, makes the free wills. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that's striking is, is uh, you know, to go to a Benedictine monastery in a very different culture, even where you don't know the language. So, um, you know, my, my Spanish is pretty sketchy, but I've been to Mexico a few times. And when I've been, gone to a Benedictine monastery, it's just, I just get in line, go to the office, pick it up, start. I, I know exactly what to do, even if I don't know the language, you know. Uh, the way we, they eat, so it's different food, but there's also, you know where to sit. <laughs> you know, you know exactly where you fit in the structure. Um, and uh, same thing when I went to South Africa, it was like, felt at home, even though it's a very different culture. Um, so the tradition is so strong, and there's so much history to it. And generally speaking, when Benedictines have encountered problems in interpreting the rule, there are only a few ways of kind of solving the problem. And so 
Uh, you know, there are sort of typical things that go on in monasteries, even when they're not in the rule. Uh, one of my favorite example of this, there are two of them. St. Benedict doesn't want to have a prior. But he says if, you, if the community humbly asks for a prior, he'll allow a prior. He wants the abbot to have final say on everything. Um, how many abbeys have there been in the history of the Benedictine order that haven't had a prior? <laughs> Probably zero. <laughs> so the, the tradition has said to St. Benedict, well, yes, we understand your concern, but we need a prior. That's just how it goes. The abbot needs to be free to be the teacher. Similarly, St. Benedict wants the brothers to sleep in dormitories, okay? And if possible, all in one dormitory. So you can, and, and in some cases, there are monastic ruins where there are uh, dormitories. However, almost every Benedictine congregation or abbey at some point decides it's better to have cells. The, the individual monks sleep in individual cells. Maybe the novices have a dormitory. But it's important that each monk have a place where he can go and be alone with God. Okay? And this, is, this goes to an earlier monastic tradition from the Desert Fathers. Um, but again, it's very interesting that there's an almost universal rejection of St. Benedict's prescription of a dormitory. So the tradition itself, you see that uh, we keep coming up with the same solutions because we're taking in the same information from the Bible, from the larger tradition, from the liturgy. And um, so there's this whole culture that's built up out of this. Um, and, it, and it's very different than being totally decentralized where, um, you know, again, the, the, the Baptists don't have a common liturgy or a common rule of life, right? And so even they, they share the Bible. The Southern Baptists mm -hmm. are trying to introduce it, but that's uh -huh. not what they fought for. They were yeah. a missionary group. Mm -hmm. They had nothing to do with rules. But yep. now yep. the free wills are still totally wild. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the Benedictine situation um, is, is a lot more stable than that. And again, it's, it's quite interesting that you find wherever Benedictine monasticism springs up, it tends to take these very typical uh, contours to it. So, well, good. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'll, I'll be in touch. Uh, I've asked Father Brendan to help us with some secretarial work. So um, well, the three of us will be working together on Oblate stuff. And uh, you'll be hearing probably from him most of the time uh, with regard to kind of uh, organizational stuff. So you'll hear from me about a retreat in... Um, Lent, and then also uh, our novices are going to be hearing from me uh, this week about uh, your next assignment. <laughs> so thank you all. Uh, why don't we pray together to finish. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.